So remember with me, in Acts chapter 13 last week, um, it's been a couple of weeks, we're three weeks into Acts chapter 13, but there's been so much going on because Paul has been sent on his first missionary journey. And as he's been sent, he's been traveling quite a bit. He left Antioch, he went to the south, uh, down towards Jerusalem, but he ended up in a town called Seleucia. And if you give me the next slide there, we'll see that he's done quite a bit of travel. Uh, Seleucia is right there on the far right. Can you guys see that? Is it readable out there? You have to get some curtains or something. But Antioch was up there. That's where the church had started, kind of the headquarters in the Middle East for the Christian church. It was no longer in Jerusalem, but it was in Antioch. And then down to the south, Paul, being sent by the Lord, went to Seleucia with Barnabas and John Mark. And when they got there, they hopped a boat and they went to Salamis on the east coast of Cyprus there. They're going to do a little island missionary journey. Uh, you know, some of us would like to go on a, to an island tour for their missionary journey, maybe Hawaii, you know. But as they got there, they shared the faith and they went across Cyprus. And they kind of strategically took the whole island and then they ended up in Paphos. And there they met up with some opposition. You have a man by the name of Alimus who was a sorcerer. He was a, a dealer in black magic, if you will. And as he was there, he was... Um, against the message that Paul and Barnabas were sharing. And so Paul basically called him out on it. He's like, look, you call yourself Simon, or excuse me, not Simon, you call yourself a son of Jesus. Uh, he said, my name is Bar-Jesus, which just means son of Jesus. Uh, but you're not a, a son of Jesus. You're not a follower of Christ. You pervert the straight ways of the Lord. You're confusing people. So because of that, the Lord is going to strike you with blindness and they're going to see you for what you really are. Spiritually, you're blind. So physically, God's making you blind. And when he did that, there was a proconsul, basically a senator that was the ruler of that region who saw those actions, who heard the words of Paul, and he wanted to become a Christian. And so he got saved. And it says there that he didn't get saved because of the miracle, but because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord through Paul. And so... As we see that, we see that God uses various, what we would call normal everyday circumstances, although we wouldn't call them miraculous and everyday circumstance, but he uses these encounters that we have with people to shed light, to show Jesus. What does Jesus do? He shows the contrast between what is dark, what is evil, and what is light, what is good. And so as he's been used to do that, we see that this uh, proconsul, this leader of the region, he made a step of faith. He says, I want to follow Jesus. And it's on this confession, when people see that Jesus is more than just some human teacher, but he's, he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah that God sent to be the Savior of the world. When they see that, and when they confess it, confession, the word there means to repeat again what is true, back to God, when they confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's the Son of the living God, that he's the Messiah, that's the confession that God builds the church on. That's where it starts. That's salvation. And so we see this in the life of this man, but we also see it in the life of Peter because there in Matthew chapter 16, let's see, my fingers aren't turning very good this morning. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had asked the disciples there in verse 13, it says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, 
Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, they responded to him. They said, some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you're Elijah, the prophet. And others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but, so Jesus then responded. He said to them, who do you say that I am? Because our salvation is not dependent upon what someone else says about who Jesus is. It's dependent upon what we say that Jesus is and how it affects our lives. He says, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, of course, he always spoke up first. He was kind of a bull in a china shop. He's like, ask me, ask me. And he said, um, he said, you are the Christ. You're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him and he said to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Verse 18, And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now oftentimes we hear people say that, well, okay, this is Peter, and he's saying that on Peter I'm going to build my church. But that's not what this verse says. It says that on this rock, because Peter, the Greek word actually means little stone. But on this rock, he's talking of, he's not talking about Peter because Peter, we've seen him over and over shove his foot in his mouth and try to swallow the thing and then look ridiculous. He was faulty just like you and I. But Peter, he's saying here, on this rock, this rock of what Peter has just confessed, that's what I'm going to build the church on. This confession of him saying, you're the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. Not that I am God, but that Jesus is Lord. And when we say, when we confess Jesus is Lord and that our life, it, it projects that very message, that's the confession that Jesus builds the church. And what I wanted to point out is that when this proconsul that we studied about last week, when he got saved, it wasn't because of what Paul said. It was because what Paul said impacted him, no doubt. God uses human messengers but it was that God was already stirring in his heart that they, he had something to offer, that even this great leader, more than the world had to offer him. He was hungry. I heard somebody speak last week, and he talked about how people, everyone that we meet, has the spiritual munchies. They've got this God-shaped hole in them. And so what do we do? He, he asked this question, and it just stuck in my mind so strictly. He said, he said, have you ever been hungry and you didn't know what you wanted? He's just like, I'm hungry, but I don't know what I want. This happens to me all the time. Kelly will ask me, hey, what do you want for dinner? I'm like, I don't know, I'm just hungry. And she'll list off some stuff, and I'm like, I could eat that, or I could eat that. But it's never the thing that I'm just like, yes, that's what I want. I don't know, I'm just hungry. And uh, he said, so what do we do when we're hungry and we don't know what we want? We go, especially men, we open up the fridge as if we didn't know what was in there. We look, then we close it. And we go to the cabinets and we do the whole, you know, we got like a pattern. We check the top drawer, the bottom drawer, and then we, then we go to the, the cabinets and we look around, ah, none of that sounds good. And so since we don't know what we want, we start sampling. It's like the Walmart on Saturday, they got the samples. I don't know what I want. I've got the munchies. And it's like, it's insane because they're like, I'll try a little of this. No, nope, that's not it. Try a little of this. Before you know it, we've glutted ourselves with things that we, we hoped would fill the gap. And the people surrounding us in this world have the spiritual munchies. They're starved to death. They're hungry for something more than what this world has yet to offer them. 
And they've tried, and many of them are trying things that they think will fulfill them. But when they come up empty, all they end up is disillusioned and still hungry. Why didn't that satisfy me? But the reality is, is that we have Jesus, and he's the one that is able to satisfy Jesus himself said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He wants to be the one that satisfies us with his love. And we're going to sing that song at the end this morning. All I have is you, and it's more than enough. And that's what many people that follow the Lord, when they find out that Jesus wants to be their everything, he satisfies them. And they'll still have the hungers, but nothing satisfies like the love of God through Jesus. And so that's what he's confessed, that Jesus is Lord. And notice in verse 17 that we just read that it says that Jesus answered and said to him, he says, blessed are you. Oh, how happy are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because it's not flesh and blood that's revealed this truth to you. If anybody calls on the name of the Lord as their savior, it's not because some man told them, but it's because the spirit of God has convicted them to that point that they understand this is true and then they then have that faith to believe but when we speak these words to people notice that it's not us that changes or saves them but it's the Lord himself so Paul and Barnabas and John Mark they they don't know what God has in store for them they don't know how God's going to use them they only know what he has told them to do go and shed the gospel spread spread the love of Jesus Christ and as they do that what we got to understand is that it's the Lord using them as they go through ordinary situations. There's a verse in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, that says this. It says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal toward him. For those who are open to being used by God, who have already been saved, God's searching for us that are loyal towards him, to use us to speak the truth into lives of others. And to those who are hungry, they got the spiritual munchies, they're left empty by this world and they're desiring more than this world has to offer, God's looking for them too. But do you know how he looks for them? He uses you and I. He uses us as his hands and feet. He uses our eyes to see the, the emptiness that people are going through and to be able to have our hearts broken for them, not because we're better than them, but because we have received the grace of God. We've received the, the bread of life and we're able to go, hey, I know what that hunger looks like. I used to have it, but here's what will fulfill that need. And then to share Jesus with them. So this week's passage has Paul and Barnabas and John Mark on this journey and, and they're just going to the next place as they feel God's leading them. They jump a ship and they leave from Paphos and they're going to go up to, and it kind of gets a little blurry there, but in Perga. And Perga is in present day Turkey. It's the, the country of Turkey that we know of today. So let's start in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It says, Now when Paul and his party, they set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga, in Pamphylia. Pamphylia is the region and Perga is the city. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. So now that they're in the mainland, they're no longer in the island, it seems that John Mark, uh, a younger guy, a disciple of Paul and Barnabas, he's with them and we don't know why, but he heads back there from Perga all the way over 
towards Antioch and then to Jerusalem, which was his home church. Seems he had a little homesickness or something. It's interesting to me that Luke didn't actually write down why he left, just wrote down that he did leave. So we don't know why. And it, I guess it's interesting to me because Luke, Dr. Luke, he's, he's owned by someone, but he's a doctor. He's a very meticulous note keeper. If you read the Gospel of Luke, and then you compare it with the Gospel of Mark, you get way more detail from Luke because he's a note taker. He's used to writing down things and keeping accounts that are very detailed so that later when he reads them, he knows what's going on, kind of like a doctor writes on a chart. And so Dr. Luke doesn't write anything. Apparently, it's not really that pertinent for us to know why John Mark left, just that he did leave. And I think the thing that we need to learn from John Mark leaving is not so much that, that he failed in the faith, it's just that he was human like the rest of us. Perhaps he got scared. Paul was deeply affected by John Mark leaving. He actually got a little aggravated with John Mark because John Mark later wants to, Barnabas is his relative, and when they leave on his second missionary journey, Barnabas goes, hey, can we take John Mark? And Paul's like, absolutely not. I don't want to take that guy again. He's squeamish. Why don't we leave him here so we don't get distracted by him leaving us? A little type A, a little lack of grace there with Paul. Paul's human too. He knew that God had given them this mission and he knew that he wanted to go hard for the Lord and he didn't want anything to slow him down. Sometimes we get that way, right? We, we don't give grace to people that really, they want to serve, they just, they're not as strong maybe. In this case, it seems Paul had a little bit of a weakness. He was a little lacking in the forgiveness department. But we find out later in his writings that though he was affected deeply and aggravated with John Mark, we find out in some of his later epistles that he, he longs for John Mark to come to him and bring him parchments when he's in prison. Not because he's like, oh man, I, I guess I could be a little nicer to him, but because he recognized that though God was on the move and using Paul, that John Mark had some lessons to learn too. And John Mark leaving him gave him the opportunity to grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord because look at the followers of Jesus. He, when Jesus was at his greatest moment of need, where did they go? When he was sweating great drops of blood, praying in the garden of Gethsemane, getting ready to, he knew fully that he was getting ready to die for the sins of the world. And all he did was ask his disciples to pray with them. What happened? They fell asleep. They laid there. They, I wouldn't say they were lazy. They were just worn out. They were weak. And so in the same way, Paul seeing that when he was in his greatest hour of need and needing those guys to be there and support him, that it wasn't those guys that he needed. He needed to call upon the Lord because those guys were weak men just like him. And so we see Paul there. And we see what happens is that though this man leaves them, that Paul still called to the same thing. It's just that he's going to have to exercise a little bit more faith. And sometimes when God calls us to do something, we expect everybody to be just as excited about our calling as we are. You know, I remember when we first came down to start the church here in Arcadia Valley, we were at Bobby Powell's, and we had a group of people coming down from Parkland Chapel every week. We were just blown away that they were, that they were coming to help and setting up and making coffee and greeting at the door. But there came a season where they're like, hey, this is no longer our calling. We're going to have to go. But we're not just going to leave you. In the month before we leave, we're going to pray that God would raise up people from down here to replace us to support you all. And for a time, it felt like that wasn't happening. But it instilled in us 
that in those trials, when we didn't feel as, as supported, that God's calling was still the same. And that we were going to continue on until God did provide. And he's doing that. And he has done that over the last many months. And we're just blown away at how God continues to use you all to encourage us, whether it's an official capacity or whether it's just in conversation, just reminding us of God's work in the lives of those around us. So Paul's the same way. He's going through this and he's going, why in the world is this guy leaving us? And then we see there that... Uh, They were worn out. So in verse 14, when they departed from Perga, they left that place. They then went to Antioch and Pisidia, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and they sat down. So sometimes little phrases jump out at me when I'm reading the scripture. But I know that they're probably worn out. As you can see with the little dotted line, uh, it seems like, you know, hey, just a little travel here, a little travel there, a little travel there. But look at just from Perga to Antioch, and you can kind of see a scale there on the lower right, that distance from Perga to Antioch is about 75 to 100 miles. Now, we don't capture the gravity of a trip like that because we read it and it goes, okay, they went from Perga to Antioch, and then they did this. But those in-between times sometimes are the things that refine us more than anything. Imagine John Mark has just left them. They've traveled basically across the Mediterranean Sea to an island and then left that island and went up to Perga to a complete different country and then they travel up to Antioch and Pisidia. This is all unknown territory. Paul was from Tarsus over here so maybe, just maybe, he had been there before but I don't know. But I just look at all that travel and go, you know, sometimes journeys wear us out. And so he comes to Antioch and Pisidia. This is not the same Antioch you can see that they left from where their home church is, this is a different Antioch. Because there was a leader during that time that really liked his own family name. And so as Romans, they conquered these different cities and they go, let's call this Antioch too. I really like hearing my name said. So they named these different towns and there's a bunch of Antiochs from that time period. But when they get there, they go, as they typically do, to the synagogue And they sit down in the synagogue. Now we know from reading last week and the weeks before that every time it seems that Paul comes into a town, his modus operandi, his normal uh, uh, operation, if you will, is he shows up in towns and he, he goes to the synagogue first. Why? Because those people have the Old Testament scriptures and that will be a springboard, even though they don't understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of those scriptures, he does know that at least they have a, a form of knowledge of that information. The Greeks and the Gentiles, they, most of them, they had never heard the Old Testament and seen or, or the writings of the Old Testament. So to go to those places, they would at least have a foundation to start from. And then they would go to the different areas. But it doesn't say that they went to the synagogue here and started preaching. It says that they went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and they sat down. He doesn't stand up to preach. He gets there and he sits down. Well, my assertion is that when they left and they did all this traveling, by the time they get to Antioch and Pisidia, they're they're completely exhausted. So they sit down and they rest. And it says that they did that on the Sabbath. What was the Sabbath? What, What was the purpose that God gave the nation of Israel for the Sabbath? Why were they even gathering on this day? Well, on the Sabbath... It was the day of rest. And if you'll remember with me, the people were not the first ones to, uh, to practice the Sabbath, but God was. 
So when God created in Genesis, he created the heavens and the earth and the animals and even Adam and then Eve. On the seventh day in Genesis, it says that he rested. Now, did God rest because he was worn out? No. Can he even be worn out? No. He rested and he taught those that were reading the scriptures and hearing from him that the Sabbath, the point of the Sabbath, was that he was doing it as an example for us to follow. He knew that us, as his creation, can only work so many days before we're completely exhausted. We need a day just to set apart and to be recharged. Now we think of rest and we think of Sabbathing as uh, sleeping or getting practical rest. But even on the Sabbath, their job was to go and to worship in the temple. It wasn't to stay at home and sleep, but it was to go and be with the people of God to worship Him. In Isaiah chapter 40, it says, those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. So sometimes, Sabbathing means stopping in the middle of our day, taking five minutes, and praising God for what He has done. Giving thanks to Him, whether it be in song or a time of prayer, uh, there are many people that have gone before us. Corrie Tin Boom brings to mind. She was a woman during the time of the German uh, Nazis when they were persecuting the Jews and actually killing them in mass quantities. And she was a Christian at that time that was taking Jewish people and hiding them in her house. And she was so worn out a lot of the time from serving and from hiding the Jews and sleepless nights when they would come in and raid her house in the middle of the night and she wouldn't get any sleep. So sometimes in the middle of the day when they weren't raiding her house because they suspected she was hiding the Jews, she would take little cat naps. And there was one account where she actually went upstairs to get some rest and slept for about five or ten minutes. And she came back down and, and they were like, I thought you were going to go get a nap. And she said, I did get a nap. She, they were like, it was only 10 or 20 minutes. And she said, sometimes with the Lord, that's all we need. You know, She didn't see her rest as being practical sleep, she saw it as she was resting in the Lord. She was filled with Him. And so she didn't need as much sleep as many other people did because her rest was not found that way. And so they end up in the temple to Sabbath, to rest. And it also makes me think of the fact that when we enter into rest, we enter into the same rest that the Lord did because Jesus, when He was crucified, buried and put in the tomb and He rose on Sunday, on the not on the Sabbath, but on Sunday, the day after the Sabbath. And then he appeared to many when he ascended into heaven. Now, Romans 8 tells us that he sits at the right hand of the Father because though he is our high priest, and the high priest used to spend the whole Sabbath day offering up sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs, he sits now as our high priest at the right hand of God, the right hand of power, and he prays for us. He makes intercession. He prays for us the things that we don't know to pray. And as he sits at the right hand of God, he sits resting because his work is finished. And so Paul enters in on the Sabbath day into the synagogue. He sits down and he rests. So there in Acts chapter 13, verse 15, it says, as he sat down in the synagogue, it says, and after the reading of the law and the prophets and the rulers, excuse me, after the reading of the law, and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue, sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation, or encouragement is that word, for the people, 
then speak it. Say on. So we don't really, most of us have probably never been to a synagogue service, and so we don't know what's going on. But the typical order of service is they would start by opening with prayers. They would offer prayers to God. And then there would be a reading from the law, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch, the five books of the law. They would read a, a, a selected passage from there. And then they would read a book from the Old Testament in the prophets. And that would be Isaiah, Jeremiah, Micah, some of those prophets. They would read those in the synagogue. So after they would get done reading from the law and then the prophets, they would have somebody come up and speak on those passages. Somebody that was educated, maybe a rabbi or you know, somebody that was a guest speaker. In this case, they recognized Paul, perhaps they, because they were from similar region. Tarsus is just right there. They had heard of Paul. He was a very well-known Jewish teacher. Uh, they couldn't give him enough books to read. He had a reputation for knowing the Old Testament. And so they see Paul come in, maybe not hearing that he became a disciple of Jesus. And they say, hey, if you've got anything to share today, why don't you come up and share it with us? And so Paul, being a man that uh, never neglected an opportunity to say more, if you've ever, ever book, read the book of Romans, he writes 16 chapters, which is basically the Magna Carta, the, the constitution for our faith in Romans. He goes ad nauseum to every little detail of God's work. In 16 chapters, he gets done at the end and he says, you know, I wish I had more time. I would explain to you more in detail about what I have and I've been trying to teach you. You know, he always had more to say. And so if someone comes up to Paul and says, hey, if you have anything to say, go ahead and say it. Paul's, he's like, of course I've got something to say. I've always got something to say. And so he gets up and it says in verse 16, Paul stood up, motioning with his hand. He said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. So this audience he has in the synagogue, is not just Jews. It says, men of Israel, in other words, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those who are from the bloodline of the Jews, and you who fear God. So hopefully the Jews were those that feared God, but he's talking about, about a specific group of people that started in those days to go to the synagogue. They were the God-fearers. It was a group called that. And they were basically Gentiles who had come to faith in the same God, the Jewish God, Yahweh. And if you want to know maybe an example in the Old Testament that was well known as a God-fearer, look at Rahab. She was one of those that when they entered into the land of Canaan, she had heard all of the stories for 40 years about God miraculously delivering them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and then through the wilderness and they saw the, the mighty works of God in this nation on their behalf to bring them into the land of Canaan. And she feared God. And so when they came in to spy out the land, she basically said, hey, I've heard of this God that you're following. And I know that he's going to give you this land. And we live here. And then he's told you, why don't you get rid of and kill all those that basically are pagans that for 400 years have just decided they're not going to follow me. They're not going to repent and turn their lives over to me. So because of that, God had sent them in to judge the land. But Rahab said, if, if there's any possibility that we can be saved from this coming judgment, can you guys help us out? Save me and my family. And they said, no problem. Now Rahab 
when they were about to be found out by spying out this, this place in Jericho, she had actually aided and abetted them. She let them hide in her house while those that were of that area came in. They, they heard there were spies in the land and they wanted to put them to death, not allow them to go back. And so she hid them. And then eventually when they came into the land because of her blessing them, she put a scarlet cord out her window and when they came to destroy Jericho, I think it was Jericho, basically they came in and they didn't destroy those people, her family. They were saved by faith through God. They were a God-fearer. And so it changed her outlook on things. And, and anyway, so she's just one example of a God-fearer. She was a Gentile. She wasn't Jewish. She had no reason to believe in God. She just called out on God's mercy on behalf of those that were following him. So anyway, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he goes into his teaching. He says, the God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. It doesn't say that they, you know, they, he was really blessed by their, you know, their interaction with him. It says he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. So he destroyed these nations, he brought in the Jews, and he distributed the land to them that he had promised to give them. And after that, he gave them judges of about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. So he's just retelling the history of Israel. And this is how they would teach the Jewish people. That's how they would learn. They would always recount God's faithfulness and they would retell and retell because they were a very verbal, they told the history up again. And so as he's telling the history, he goes through the different times of the kingdom of Israel. He starts with the patriarchs and how they were brought into Egypt. And then when they were delivered and they went into the land, God set up the judges to remind them over and over again to judge over the people of Israel. But the leader of them was to be God. They were supposed to not be a democracy, but a theocracy. They weren't supposed to be a kingdom with a king, but the king was supposed to be God. But there came a time when they asked for a king like all the other nations have. So it says, after they had the judges and the prophet Samuel, verse 21 says, afterward, they asked for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. They asked for a king. God gave them a king. And the word Saul, the name Saul actually means asked for. And so they gave them a king just like they asked for, who was a king like all the other nations. He was a very carnal man. He was not a king like God picks. He was a king like all the other nations had. He was tall. He was good looking. He ruled with a strong hand. But he wasn't necessarily the most godly guy. If they'd awaited, God was already preparing them for them a king. And when he had removed him, verse 22, meaning when he had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Saul tended to do his own will, but David would do the will of his God. David wasn't a tall man. He wasn't a handsome man. says he was a ruddy man. He, was, he had character, though. He 
had a heart that was loyal towards God, like we read in Second Chronicles 16. And so God was looking for a man that would do God's will. And so as he found him, though we know that David had his own faulty points and his own failures, from this man's seed, verse 23, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. So he's recounting the Old Testament history to show that God's plan all along was to show himself faithful and eventually through the lineage, through the descendants of David, he was going to bring, and David was also a descendant of Adam, we see that he was going to bring through the nation, through the Adam to Abraham and Abraham to David, and then David all the way to the birth of Jesus. Jesus was the fulfillment of everything, and he is not only a savior, but he's a direct descendant of the king of David. So he himself is Jewish. So verse 24 says, Then at that time Jesus, after Jesus came, after John had preached before his coming and baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, his ministry was coming to a close, he said, Who do you think I am? Because they thought, hey, this is the time, this is the Messiah, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist said, I am not he, verse uh, 25 says there, I am not he, he, but behold, there comes one who will come after me, the sandals of which I am not worthy to loose. This is interesting that he uses this because in that culture, to unloose someone's sandals and take them off was not something that they even considered Someone, it, it was too humble of a thing to do. So the lowest of the low servants in a house, they were the ones that would take off the sandal and wash the, the guest's feet and even the people that lived there, their feet. We don't think of this because we wear shoes, we take them off, we leave them in the mud room. But they had servants that would take off the shoes. This is why it's so significant that Jesus, when he took on the form of a bond slave, a servant, and he washed his disciples' feet. And Peter said, no, 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 don't wash my feet because it was, it was uncalled for, absolutely not. They would not have somebody that was an equal or even somebody that was higher than them or even somebody that was lower than them wash their feet. It was just, no, you can't wash my feet, Peter said. And, and Jesus said, look, Peter, if you won't let me wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And so he let him do it. But then he said, okay, then don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body. And the Lord said, you don't need me to wash your whole body. In order to be clean, all you need is for me to wash your feet. And so, but John says here, I'm not even worthy to take off Jesus' shoes. I'm not worthy of that. His shoes, <laughs> you know, I, I can't do it. So there, in uh, verse 26, Paul then takes this message, leading the history of Israel all the way up to Jesus, to John the Baptist, preparing the way so that Israel would repent and have their hearts softened and be ready to receive the Messiah, the Savior that they'd been waiting for, for all these years. And then Paul takes it from a vague, wide-angle view of the history of the nation of Israel, and he zooms in, he says, men and, uh, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, I'm no longer talking about the nation, I'm talking to you that are listening. He says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and to those among you who fear God... To you, to you that are listening here today in this room, he says, 
to you, the word of this salvation has been sent. In other words, the fact that I'm in this room speaking these words today, it's not a coincidence. That's what Paul's saying. He said, at just the right time, God has taken me. I'm coming from Antioch and from Tarsus. And before that, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and God has humbled me. I've been saved by Jesus. And this word, this message of the gospel of salvation through him alone, not by works, lest anyone should boast, I have been brought through Cyprus, I've been brought through tribulation and travel, and I'm here at Antioch today, and I'm speaking to you from God, the message of salvation through Jesus, and it's not a coincidence that you guys are here to hear it. And then he gives them a warning, verse 27. He says, those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know Jesus, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every day on the Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. In other words, the people that I've preached to and the people that Jesus met personally, they were like you. They gathered every Sabbath. They read the Old Testament, uh, the law and the prophets, and they prayed and they had somebody speak. But just like you, in this situation, they heard the word of God, but they did not go, know God himself. They, did, they, heard, they knew the word of God, but they didn't know the God of the word. And so verse 28, it says, And though they found no cause for death in Jesus, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning Jesus, they took him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb. They killed the Son of God. This is what he's telling them. Your people, the Jews, those who feared God, they killed the Son of God. Verse 29 said that. And they laid him in the tomb. And then verse 30, but God, the, the best phrase in all of Scripture in my opinion, but God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. So it's not just my testimony. It's, I'm, not, I'm not just telling you what I experienced or what I saw. There were 500 people, the book of Acts teaches us, that saw Jesus resurrected. They saw the holes in his hands. They, they witnessed him personally. Verse 31, verse 32, And we declare to you glad tidings, that word means gospel, good news, that promise which was made to the fathers. This is a fulfillment of the promise that God made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised us up, excuse me, raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. And then he quotes from the, the book of Psalms where it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. And therefore, he also says in another Psalm, verse 35, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So he's quoting these prophets, these testimonies that were even just in their book of Psalms. You know that, that prayer that David wrote down? It wasn't just about what the situation that he was in, but it was about Jesus himself. And then he speaks about it. And he quotes from Psalm chapter 16, where it says, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. And they thought that that was speaking about David, who was one who they considered holy. You know, 
You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. But then he gives an explanation. He goes, wait a minute. If this was about David, we all know that David, he served his time. He was a king. But then he died and he was laid in a tomb. And that was it. We haven't heard from him since. So he's contrasting between who they thought was somebody great, King David, and Jesus. It says in verse 36, they give an explanation. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, he fell asleep, he died, he was buried with his fathers, and he saw corruption. In other words, they laid him in the tomb, he wasn't risen, like his body, it's, it's seeing corruption, you get the point. Worms and and all the stuff that's under the ground. We don't like to think about that, but that's what happens to our bodies. But then, he says in verse 37, he whom God raised up saw no corruption. He was laid in the tomb, but when they went looking for him the day after the Sabbath, what did they find there? They found his linens. They found the evidence that he had been there, but they didn't find his body. It was gone. He did not see corruption. Therefore, verse 38, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you, this is where we get the forgiveness of sins. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead was the receipt from God saying, the payment for your sins has been received. Your sins, the, the death that you deserved has been paid in full. And so, verse 39, by him, everyone who believes is justified and from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses... Excuse me, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He says, Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets comes upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. In other words, those who despise the word of God. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He says, beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. You can come every week to the temple, to the synagogue, and you can be there right in the presence of God, hearing his words, but not applying them to your life. He says, don't you know that Jesus came to save you from your sins? And the Jews and those who feared God, they understood that to approach a holy God, your sins had to first be dealt with. But he's saying, though you went and you would kill an animal and sacrifice it on the altar, that blood being shed to cover your sins, that blood would be laid on the altar to cover the sins of the nations. And the, in the altar was many different articles. One was the rod of Aaron and the, you know, they had the, um, the manna that they were given in the wilderness, you know, signifying that they had not trusted in the, in the, the God giving them what they needed in the wilderness, it would cover their sins. But Jesus, being our high priest, has provided a sacrifice that no longer covers our sins, but washes us of our sins. Doesn't just put a rug over our dust, but it sweeps that dust clean so much so that it doesn't even fill the air around us. It's no longer there. It's no longer accounted to our account. We're no longer bankrupt but Jesus has not only removed all of our debt, but then provided his righteousness into our account. We are now rich in Christ. And so he says to them, I want you to receive this gospel. That's what I've come to preach to you about. This is what the Old Testament was all leading to. 
So as we see that, we ask ourselves, what is it that keeps us from hearing the word of God? He's given them witness to all those who saw Jesus and the testimony from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's given them the testimony that we now share because God sent us with this message. And then he asked them, what are you going to do with this? And the question is, what do we do with the message of Jesus? And the answer is, we have to trust in it by faith. The Old Testament following it couldn't save. The, even Paul wrote in, in, his, uh, in his book in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, We have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power of God is not of us. We're hard-pressed on every side, we're crushed, we're not perplexed, but... We're not in despair, we're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. He says, and since we have the same spirit of faith, According to what is written, I believed, and therefore I spoke. We also believe, and therefore we speak. And that's why we share this message. Knowing that he who raised up the Lord Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus, and we will present us with you. For all things are for your sakes, that grace, having spread through the many, may cause thanksgiving to abound to the glory of God. And so I ask you, or I say to you, we, we must be those who don't spend our time worrying about the results of who we share with. Paul shed this gospel and he spread it to these people in Antioch. And we're going to see that because of it, in verse 40, uh, let's see, where did I end? Verse 42, it says, So when the Jews, they went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles, because of the word that they had heard from Paul, they, they begged that these words might be preached again to them the next Sabbath. And when the congregation had broken up, in other words, they left church, uh, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes, those who were following God, they followed Paul and Barnabas, speaking to them, they persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So many of them got saved that day. And Paul said, keep going, continue in the grace of God. But then we're going to find out that on the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But we're going to find out that it didn't necessarily go well that they all gathered because there's going to be many that are aggravated because all of a sudden the Jewish teachers, they're going to see all the people come to church that never came before and they're going to go, wait a minute, so all these people can be saved too? I thought this was just for us. And so anyway, my point is, we'll see how this ends up next week. But my other point is, is that when Paul was at his weakest and most worn out point, when he was weak and completely just broken down and he showed up in the Sabbath, on the Sabbath in the synagogue, that's when God used him. In his weakness, God's strength was made perfect because I don't know about you guys, but he covered a lot of ground this morning. And it wasn't something that he got up and did like me and read from his iPad or from his journal. It was something that had become so much a part of who he was that when he spoke, that's what came out. The love of God and the plan of God of salvation to all those who will believe. So believe in God, get to know Him, and when people ask, 
That's what's going to, when you get squeezed and you're worn out, that's what's going to come out in your weak moments. Imagine if Paul had showed up and he was completely charged up and, and not worn out. Perhaps he would have been tempted to share something that was his own uh, high horse or soapbox. But he was so worn out, he's like, I'm just here to tell you about Jesus. So Father, thank you so much that you allow us to be weakened and worn out by the, the, each leg of the journey. And thank you that when Paul shared his testimony, I, I don't doubt a bit that they could tell, out he was, tell that he was worn out from travel. But when he spoke, he spoke your words. Father, fill us with your words. Help us to be like Proverbs and not any longer trust in our own ways, but in all our ways to acknowledge you, to obey the calling you placed on our lives. And when, when you give us opportunities to speak, Lord, may, us, may we be filled with your words. Father, I thank you for Paul's testimony. I pray that it would sink into our hearts. May we uh, heed the warning that he gave those Jews and those God-fearers that day. May we not be hardened May we not approach you as if you're not willing to speak, but may we hear your word and take it and apply it. And Lord, um, may we truly experience your love every day as we just allow you to let that sink into our hearts. Father, may you be enough for us as we just obey what we know about you today. Thank you for your word, and we just pray that you'd bless us as we sing this one last song to you. In Jesus' name, amen.